It was actually, I think, Stu and Livy who helped me to get a bit of a feel for, for George Muller's story when I heard them talking about him once before. And it really inspired and encouraged me. And uh, so first I just want to ask you, could you just tell us a little bit about who he was, what was essentially the story of, of George Muller's life? Sure, I would love to tell you the story of George Muller's life. Thanks, Stu. Um, so George Muller, I guess many of you will never even heard of him or not know much of the story. Uh, he was a, actually a German guy, uh, or Prussia as it was then, um, brought, born at the beginning of the 1800s. Um, grew up a kind of quite a wealthy family. Um, grew up in a, a culture that was very Christianized, but without a real faith. And um, as a teenager, he was very rebellious. He was kind of rebellious against his dad. He used to go out and steal things. He used to kind of run away for weeks at a time and kind of go on holiday and cheap hotels and run away and all those kind of stuff. Um, and he basically met Jesus when he was at university. He was kind of introduced to Christianity by a friend and had a, a very real conversion in his heart. And basically from that moment on became a man of genuine faith. He knew that the Jesus that he had started to follow was real. And the Christianity he'd grown up in uh, was quite ritualistic. Uh, but the Christianity that he discovered when he was born again, when he became a Christian, was one in which God was real and therefore God heard prayer. And the story of his whole life really was that God heard prayer and that God was real and that if God could hear, then God would answer. And, and so from very early on in his Christian life, he would pray and he would find that God answered his prayers. And that started off with simple things like getting a job. Uh, and then as his life went on, it became bigger and bigger and bigger. And his muscle of faith grew very, very big. Um, and he moved to the UK uh, in his 20s. He eventually ended up in Bristol. He started leading a church. Bristol, yes. Uh, he started leading a church in Bristol. And then one day he was out walking and he met a girl who was an orphan. And uh, there was a massive problem with, uh, in, in, in the country at that time with hundreds and thousands of kids actually who were orphaned. Uh, there wasn't very much state provision at all. In fact, in the whole of the country, there were 3,600 places in orphan houses. So the whole national provision for orphans was 3,600 places. That's all that the, the entire country could provide. But there was a massive problem illustrated by the fact there were over 7,000 children under the age of eight who were in prison. So there were more places in prison for under eight-year-olds than there were places providing for orphans in the whole country. So that was the kind of the world that he was in. He met this girl and he decided that surely something should be done to help these orphans and that God would answer his prayers and provide. And so he, uh, in Bristol, he started off by basically renting a house uh, on a street in Bristol, which is actually very close to where we used to live in Bristol when we lived there. And he, first of all, got about 20 girls into this house and he basically prayed every day that God would provide all that they needed to pay for the house, to pay for the food, to pay for the people to look after these children. And God did. And then after a while, he realized this isn't enough. We could, we've only got seven to 12-year-olds. What about the younger girls? And what about all the boys? And so he prayed that God would give them enough for another house, and God did. And so they had two. Then they had three houses on this street in Bristol. And then it, <clears throat> eventually he realized this is never going to be enough. We've got to do something much bigger than this. And so he prayed that God would provide enough for them to build their own orphanages 
or, or a massive orphanage. He wanted to build one you know, that would take 500 kids. And so he prayed and he asked God to provide the finances. And he went just to what at that time was the edge of Bristol, a place called Ashley Down. And he prayed that God would give him land, and he did. And he prayed that God would give him finances, and he did. And he built this house that housed 500, I think maybe the first one was 350 children. And they had all the food, they had all the equipment, they had all the people to run it, and God provided for it. And when he'd done that, he realized this isn't enough. There's still hundreds and hundreds of children who are just living on the streets. And so he prayed that God would give them enough for another house, and God did. And then another house, and God did, until the point where he had built these five enormous when I say houses it's not quite right you've got to think more like a a, like an old stately home is more like it so like if you think about maybe a two or three of these kind of sheds in a row they're the size of these houses and he built five of them um, up in Ashley Down which is just like a a suburb now really of Bristol Um, and you could fit 2,000 children in them by the end of his life Um, He had looked after and prayed in the provision for 10,000 children in Bristol. And by the end of his life, um, like I said at the beginning, there was provision for 3,600 orphans. By the end of his life, there was provision in the country for over 100,000 orphans. So him stepping in and praying had basically completely changed not just the children's lives in Bristol, but actually across the whole nation, people had been inspired and challenged by his example, and it changed the, whole, the way the whole nation thought about orphans and about God, by the way, as well. Um, and, and then on the day of his death, um, there's one really moving thing that on the day of his death, basically, when, when the news got out that he had died, he was nine, I think he was 94, 95, something like that, um, he... He died, and then the word got round that he had died, and the whole of the city of Bristol stopped for the day to honour his memory. So all the shops closed for the day. There was a procession with all the kind of royal and, I guess, city council carriages went on this massive procession, and the whole of the city basically stopped. All the children that had been were in the orphanages or had been in the orphanages led this kind of seven to ten thousand long procession of people who had been impacted by his life went to the funeral service the whole thing basically was a kind of a tribute to who he had been and the story of his life basically was that he had wanted to do something that demonstrated the glory of God he wanted to demonstrate to the world that God answered prayer and he did it by looking after all these kids and changing the way the whole nation thought about kids other famous uh, missionaries and people of God were also inspired by him and followed his example of learning to pray and trust God to answer prayer. And uh, partly because we lived in Bristol for 10 years, um, and partly, I guess, because of the wisdom of God, uh, we read his story early on and we found that it has been an inspiration for us. I used to go on walks. And, and you could just, from lots of different places where we lived in Bristol, you could go on a walk and you would see one of these buildings. They're still there today uh, on the top of the hill that was like a kind of a standing testament to a, a man of amazing faith who God used to do amazing things. That's fantastic. Amazing. So could you raise your hand if you knew anything about George Mueller before you came today? Okay, so a smattering of you. But for a lot of you, this is brand new. Yeah. And I think sometimes when we consider these extraordinary heroes, the danger is that you look at the legacy they leave behind and the incredible impact they had, and we can put them on a pedestal and think, well, they're kind of, they're in a different league. I've got little to learn from them. Now, Livy, 
you were telling me that that was, hasn't been the case for you in as much as you've looked at George Miller's life and you've been able to learn specific things, specific things about the way he's lived, uh, he lived have struck you and helped you. Could you tell us about some of the things that have struck you and helped yeah, you? Yeah, sure. Um, one of the remarkable things about Muller is that um, unlike what you might expect when you just hear that story that Stu's just told you about the orphans and the children, you might think, wow, this man must have been so compassionate. Um, he, he must have been motivated by such a sense of the need around him and, and that must have been what drove him to do like these extraordinary things over years and years to be, to be kind of pushing for the care of orphans and he must have been so, driven by compassion. One of the most striking things about his life is that as you get to know him through his journals and through people's biographies written about him is you find he was far more struck by something greater than compassion. And he was actually... The whole basis, really, of what he did with his 90 years of living was he wanted to prove that God was faithful to people. He actually, he was far more motivated, in a sense, about God being known for who he really is than he was about solving social problems of his day. Uh, He was a massively compassionate man. He was a father figure to like we're saying, thousands of children. He, was, he became an inspiration to many in the, in the movement of childcare. But, but essentially what drove him deeper than that, greater than that, was not just, oh gosh, how awful it is to be in the 1800s and see children on the streets. No, it was God can be taken at his word. And he actually, his primary concern actually was for Christians to realize that you could live in a dependent relationship on God and pray and that that would unlock all sorts of, the, of resources and, and work, really, for God's glory. And that you never needed to look for another resource. You didn't need to be well-connected. You didn't need to be wealthy. You didn't need to be highly educated. You didn't need to come from the right city or background or family. You didn't need to be particularly gifted. It wasn't that, that he was an outstanding um, you know, public speaker or great orator or anything like that. It was that he spent his life, really putting himself in a position where he could demonstrate to people that prayer, that God answered prayer. In fact, I just want to read you a a, a little bit of what he said about this in one of the books that we've been looking at. He says, My spirit longed to be instrumental in strengthening the faith of believers, to give them not only instances from the word of God, of his willingness and ability to help those who rely upon him, but to actually show them by proof that he's the same in our day. I well knew that the word of God ought to be enough. And so he's saying, I knew that Christians ought to just be able to read the stories in the Bible and think, oh, you can trust God. But he says, it was, it was grace enough to me for that. But still I considered I ought to lend a helping hand to all my brothers and sisters in the Lord. If by any means this visible proof could be made to the unchangeable faithfulness of the Lord that I might strengthen their hands in God. I therefore judged myself bound to be a servant of Christ and of his church in being able to take God by his word and show him to be reliable. He said, it seemed best to me to do this by establishing an orphan house. I knew it needed to be something which could be seen by the natural eye. If I, a poor man, simply by prayer and faith, could obtain, without asking any individual, the means for establishing and carrying on an orphan house, there would be something with, which with the Lord's blessing could be instrumental in strengthening the faith of the children of God and be a testimony to the consciences of the unconverted of the reality of God. So the, 
the really striking thing about Muller is I would say more than a man of compassion was that he was a man of faith. And that faith in, and not just faith in, in oh, God's good, God's going to do great things, but particularly faith in prayer. Faith that prayer was the most effective, most significant thing that he could give his life to. When you read some of the stories of how he lived, he, he genuinely, but you can see it from the way he writes his journal accounts, that he genuinely believed the best thing I can do with the day I have ahead of me is to take all of my needs and wants and desires to the Lord in prayer. So he prayed morning, noon, and night. He, he talks about his prayer times with his wife. He, talks, he, he, he writes about, we had this need, we had that need, we had this gap in provision. What must we do? We must pray. And, and sometimes you find him praying at 9 and 10 and 11 and 12 and 1 and 2 through the day, lifting to God the things that he was looking for God to do because he genuinely believed this whole ministry is meant to advertise to the world, to Christians and to the world, God is serious about prayer. And I, I find that really striking because I don't, I, I don't lack compassion at all. In fact, i woven right into how God has made me. I'm a very compassionate person. I get very, I'm, I'm quick to feel people's pain and the needs of our society. But I recognize that actually it's overwhelming to be motivated by compassion. It's, it actually isn't sustainable because you, we are never going to run out of the cry of the poor and the needy and the need for God. What we need for sustenance is to be like Muller and to think, you know what, God is able to do everything that needs to be done by prayer alone. So it's really striking for me that, that prayer and faith were so undergirded his ministry and his motivation. Fantastic. Amazing. Could you just tell us what the name of the book is that you just read that from and give us some illustrations, some stories that point out yeah. what, you're, what you've been describing to us? Sure. So this is just one of many books that's written about Muller. This one is a Moody classic. Um, so it's part of a, a series of books um, established by the Moody Foundation. Uh, it's called George Muller Answers to Prayer. Um, it's, it's a, you can search for it online. There's another great one that is next to Stu on the floor, which is called George Muller. Um, it's by, I can't see the front to say what it's called. The Guardian of Bristol's Orphan, Orphans. And it's um, in a series, actually, published by YWAM. And um, a series of books written about Christian heroes of the faith. People from historical followers of Christ who've got stories that, like this seminar track is about, breed faith. And uh, is is absolutely wonderful to just carry, um, to be able to carry the lives of someone who lived. So Muller was living in the 1800s, right? So he, that's... We get, he was born about 200 years ago. So his language, his lifestyle, what, what the UK was like at that time is very different. But to be able to learn from these kind of biographies of how his life continues to impact us. I, I was saying to the guys earlier, when I get to glory, I'm going to go and find him. And I'm going to know who he is. And I'm going to know about his life. He is not going to have a clue who I am. But I want to I be able to say to people like that, I lived how I lived because of how you lived. What you did in your life caused me to catch faith and vision for how I can live in my life. And, you know, I actually am I'm ambitious that other people in the future will come and find me in glory and say, I lived how I lived because of how you lived. Because actually we stand on the shoulders of one another as followers of Christ. And, and so there, there are just hundreds of stories. I mean, I'll just, I'll just share one with you that I love. Um, Muller was completely committed to 
moving God's heart more than moving men and women's hearts. So you know when you're in one of those situations when you've got, you've got a situation in front of you, you really need God to do something about it. Maybe it's that you're looking for a job and you, and you haven't got one, or maybe you need some finances, or, or maybe you're looking for um, an answer to a sort of conundrum in your life. And, and the natural instinct of many of us can be, what can I do to solve this problem? And we might think I need to talk to that person or it would be really helpful if that person got involved or I could, I could ask for help from this situation or I could go and try and get connected to them. Or... And Muller's response was, well, I'll go first to the Lord and I won't go to men. And so when he set up these orphanages, he, he spoke publicly of his desire to open an orphan house. And then he prayed and secretly, quietly, hidden away, prayed and prayed. And he prayed in every article that he would need for a house. He prayed for the, he prayed for the actual bricks and mortar, but he prayed for carpeting, and he prayed for bedding, and he prayed for curtains, and he prayed for people, and he prayed for tin cups, and he prayed for coal for the fire. And he made a list in his journal of all the items he was asking the Lord for. And he never once put out an advert saying, new orphanage opening, we need curtains. If anyone has curtains, come and bring them. We need coal. We we need 10 pounds to pay for all the uh, bedroom furniture. We need, you know, in that time, 10 pounds went a long way. Um, you know, he, ne- he never appealed. He was running these orphanages for 60 years. Not once in 60 years did he put out an appeal for specific finance. He took all his appeals to the Lord. He made lists of things he was praying for, and he specifically asked him again and again and again. And, and, he, would, and he would ask him for specific things. So he would say, Father, you know that we have one day of, day's worth of coal left for the boiler. And when the coal runs out, we will have no coal to light the fires. So he would get on his knees and he would get his team on his knees and they would seek God for coal. And they would wait. And they wouldn't go down to the local um, kind of colliery and try and find out if there were any spare bags going cheap. They would just pray. And then there was story after story of people would come. People would drive up on their wagons to the, to the door of the orphanage and they would say, uh, in the night. Uh, I just felt this burning necessity that I needed to bring you six bags of coal. So here they are. And, and that would be, and then he'd, then he'd put a date in his journal, coal delivered, this number of bags on this date. And he, he has got pages and pages of these stories. And one really specific one, one night he was walking home from the orphanage. They only had two days worth left of resources in the orphanage, which meant that they could only feed the children for another two days and then they would run out of all their finances. And he was walking home and he felt the need to seek the Lord for longer in prayer to obtain something. He felt like the Lord said to him, extend your walk. So he took a longer journey home than normal and he did like a large loop around the city and a very much a diversion from where he would normally be. And he just spent the time praying and asking God for the finances for the next two days and for beyond. And as he was returning back from his walk, he bumped into a guy who said, oh, I've been looking for you. I came to the orphanages, but you weren't there. I was just on my way home. The Lord has told me to give you 10 pounds. 10 pounds in those days is like thousands of pounds in our day. And he says when he writes about it, he says, it was a chance meeting, but not a chance to the Lord. It was constructed by God. And Muller learned that. He learned that if I bring what I need to God, God can move in people's lives and cause them to be the answer to my prayer. And so it's just amazing to know that he, he lived this out day by day, week by week, in, in a really real way, praying for really real things. Can I, the reason we decided to do this as an interview is so that we could interrupt each other, like we do in normal conversation when we're having with people. Uh, so we just figured that would be a good way, because once we start talking about it, as all these things come out, because we get excited. The, probably the most famous story, which some of you may have heard of in the past, is um, when one time the cook came to see him in the morning, and he was 
meeting with someone and the cook came in and said, basically, the children are coming to breakfast, but we don't have any food. They'd run out of money. They'd run out of food. And she said, literally, there's nothing here. And so there was a little girl who was with him in this meeting. And he said to her, Emily, come with me and watch because we're going to see how our father will provide for us. And so he walked into the breakfast room where hundreds and hundreds of orphans were coming and taking their seats. And he got them all to sit down. He said, children, we're going to pray and we're going to thank God for what God's about to provide for us. And so they prayed together and they kind of prayed a prayer of grace and they thanked God. At which point there was a knock on the door uh, and it was the, ba- the local baker who, who kind of, like one of the stories that Liv said, said, knocked on the door and said, I haven't been able to sleep all night. Basically, I've been really troubled in my spirit because I keep feeling like God wants me to provide bread for you. So I've been up since three o'clock this morning baking bread and here it is. Do you want it? And so, and then so they brought it in and they kind of thanked God and praised God and started eating the bread, at which point there was a knock on the door and it was the milkman. And the milkman said, my, my, my wagon has just broken down outside. I've got all this milk, but I can't, I can't transport it anywhere and I won't be able to fix the wagon until I take it off. So it, basically I've got these, cart, these big gallon full cartons full of milk. Can I give them to you? Will they be any of, of any use to you? And so there was this kind of amazing story of provision and it was... That's the most famous one because it's perhaps the most dramatic. But when you read through the stories, you realize it wasn't an isolated incident. It was him having proved God. He had this amazing confidence that every time he asked, God would provide because that's what God had promised to him. We, we um, We actually... when we first got to know this kind of um, experience that he had of kind of hand-to-mouth prayer, like praying when there is no other solution and there's nothing, you know, there's nothing else you can do but prayer and then seeing God answer quickly. We actually had that ourselves, didn't we, in terms of finance in our lives. Do you want to um, talk about how we kind of learned to pray? Basically, that? you're done now because <laughs> <laughs> you won't be able to get the microphone back. Yeah, so one of the things that I think is striking when you read the story of George Muller is that he didn't start off trying to get thousands and thousands of pounds for 500 orphans. He started as a student in his own room, uh, his very first prayer at all, in fact. He describes uh, his first prayer was when he'd run out of money um, and he had basically, he'd always been provided for by his dad because his dad was quite wealthy, but he'd basically made a decision. I need to basically tell my dad I can't take his financial support anymore because as long as I'm receiving support from my dad I need to do what he says and I know in my heart that I need to be free to be obedient to whatever Jesus tells me to do so he said to his dad in a in a nice way in a good way I don't want your support anymore because I'm relying on my father in heaven and then he says his first ever prayer was in his room when he'd run out of money and he knelt down and he prayed and he asked his father in heaven to provide for him And then within an hour, the principal of his college had knocked on the door and offered him a job and told him how he could get free accommodation. And so he kind of realized straight away, wow, this actually works. When I ask God, God provides for me. Um, And I think that's actually really important because we can sit here and think, man, I don't know where to start. You know, I don't have 500 kids to look after uh, and I don't need that kind of prayer. But actually he started with something very practical and very real. And when we were students, we got married when we were students didn't have uh, very much income and so for a couple of two or three years in particular we were basically trying to work out how do we do this how does this work how do we what how do we learn what it means for us to be generous in our giving to the church and our kind of financial giving before God when we actually have very little income ourselves and uh, 
partly because we had been we were reading these stories of George Muller, um, we were basically trying to work that out. And so we were learning to try and be generous without giving to the church, generous in our hospitality towards others. And then when we didn't have enough money to live, pray and ask God to provide that for us. And we had a number of stories really of praying those prayers we would before we walked off to university in the morning we would pray together sometimes recognizing we've run out of money we need God to provide for us and then walking down the stairs of our flat and getting to an envelope at the bottom you know that had just come through the door that had some cash in it or had some money in it um just before we got married I was realizing oh man I don't have any money you know I'm like this broke student who's proposed to this uh, lovely lady um, and we're about to get married and, and, and I didn't and I was just like I, I don't really want to go in to my marriage bringing debt with me and so I prayed um, in my halls of residence prayed that God would provide for me and that God would help me and then I walked to breakfast collected my post on the way and I had four bits of post and all four of them basically were related to money pro- financial provision for me one was a like a pay, uh, was a check from some work I'd done a few months previously, um, some football coaching, and they were finally getting around to paying me. Um, one of them was from the tax office, I think, and it was like recognizing you pay too much tax last year. Here's some money back. And then one of them was a bank statement saying, uh, you don't have any money in your bank account. You know, I was like, yeah, I, I knew that actually. But the second one was a second bank statement. And without realizing it, I'd accidentally opened two bank accounts um, with the same bank, with NatWest as a student. And I hadn't realized it, but I'd been paying my money into one and taking the money out the other one. <laughs> so I basically opened the second bit of post and realized, I've got more money, than there's, more, there's money in this other bank account that I never realized. And so it was this amazing answer. I'd kind of prayed, God, can you provide? Change my financial circumstances. And, and, you know, and so stories like that basically were kind of part of the first few years of our lives. They weren't really providing for hundreds and hundreds of others, it was really learning what does it look like to give faithfully, to try and give generously, and what does that look like? And then we've tried to carry that into the rest of our lives and try to work out. Because once you realize God answers prayer, I think what happened to George Muller is he realized, well, if, if God will answer these prayers, how far can we take this? Like, if God will provide a job for me when I pray, will he provide... Other thing, you know, will he provide more? If God can provide enough to house 26 orphan girls in a, in a small house, can he therefore also provide enough to house 50? Well, what about 100? Could he do 1,000? And it's like Muller just stretched this mus- muscle of faith year after year, and it grew and it grew, and we've tried to do the same thing. Should I keep going, or does someone want to interrupt me? Because I've got more stories. And <laughs> um, so one of the ways I learned that was God took me on a bit of a journey about giving that some of you would have been on this journey as well, although you didn't realize it perhaps at the time. When I was about 21, I was in a church prayer meeting and the, the pastor of the church basically said, I want you to just have a few minutes where you just, you just pray and you let God stir in your heart. What do you, want to, what do you want to be praying for for this church? And I started praying and I didn't realize this was in me at all, but I started praying that God would enable us as a church to give away 20,000 pounds and I'd never heard of that kind of as an idea or the kind of it was just 
We'd taken offerings for the church before, but I'd never really heard of the idea of taking offerings to give away. But I just kind of, it kind of rose up within me and I started praying for it. And I got really excited about it. And I spoke to the guy leading the church and we talked about whether we might do it. I got really excited and I actually went home and I wrote a little document on my computer called 20 Reasons to Give £20,000 to the Poor. And I was 21. And then kind of events kind of transpired to mean that in the end, the church was a bit hard up. And they, they, as elders, they decided, actually, we're not going to take a massive offering to give away because of where we're at. And I was actually really disappointed at the time. Five years later, I found myself at New Day in 2008, preaching a sermon, 20 reasons to give £100,000 to the poor. And I basically preached the notes that I'd written five years earlier. I preached, some of you would have been here, and it was the first time at New Day we ever raised over £100,000 in our offering. And six or seven years after that, which is two years ago, I found myself preaching the same sermon again, 20 reasons to give more than £100,000 to the poor. And that year was, you know, we smashed it and we took an offering for 160 grand that we gave away. Much of it went to Zimbabwe. I know some of you would have been here and, and been a part of that. So I guess that was just another part of my own journey of realizing you start with something and then as you you kind of test and you prove the faithfulness of God, you find that, oh, my faith is growing. I, I believed God for 20, I think. But now I believe God for 50. I think I can believe God for 100. And actually, the morning of that prayer, um, that offering two years ago, we, we were in one of these rooms. It might have even been here. And we were praying for the offering. And I was a bit nervous because I was like, I've made a big deal about we're going to go over 100 grand and are we going to get there? And I, and I was preaching, so I felt the pressure a little bit. And I was praying down on this corner down here and I was praying. And as we prayed, I felt this amazing faith. And I was like, we're so going to smash 100 grand. I found myself praying for 250 grand. I was like, we're, we're, defi- we're done. We're done on 100. We're there. God's provided it. Can we get to 250? And so you just find that as you begin to see God answer your prayers and see his faithfulness to you, your faith grows and you can stretch further and further. So it sounds fun, doesn't it? I mean, absolutely amazing. I mean, sometimes I think when we get to um, giving and stuff and we sort of think, well, you know, I should probably tithe. Uh, do I give a full 10%? Is that what I have to do? And uh, that's a pretty boring way to give. Uh, you know, really counting the pennies, sort of thinking, can I afford to give to God? And uh, really, as I alluded to on the first day, some of the stories in my own life where I've seen God show up really clearly have had to do with finance. And I really want to encourage you that, uh, you know, our generation worships money. And Jesus said you can't worship God and money. You've got to choose one. And I think it's when we make our decision, I'm not actually going to trust money. I'm going to trust God. I'm going to worship God with my money that God shows up and you get stories. Uh, my little brother, Tim, I mean, as, as I was saying earlier on, sometimes you put these people on a pedestal, you think, wow, you know, George Muller. You could be tempted to think, wow, Stu and Livy Gibbs. And uh, I'll tell you about someone really normal, my little brother. And uh, he, he, he and his wife thought, okay, we're going we're gonna to take a step of faith. We're going to give some money beyond what we can, uh, you know, kind of recklessly. And so they gave a big old whopping chunk of money to an offering in uh, the church in Brighton. The next day, my brother's wife goes to work and she gets taken into the office and said, uh, Esme, we're ever so sorry, we seem to have made an error. We, uh, we owe you £3,000. And they're like, oh, okay, thank you. <laughs> it's just amazing. So I really want to encourage you because I think when we treat giving as a kind of obligation, a Christian duty, it can be quite a boring thing. 
uh, quite a labor, kind of burden. But actually, when we start trusting God with our finances, you start getting some stories. And uh, I really want to encourage you, even as we have the offering here, you know, why not take some reckless steps of faith and see what God might do? So you've got some stories to tell with your own finances. Uh, it's amazing how God is willing to show up. Now, this whole thing we were talking about hand-to-mouth, uh, you look like you wanted to say something. Okay. The, the whole thing, look at living hand-to-mouth, having to trust God day by day. You know, the needs are great, so we're going to have to pray all the more. You know, I was asked a student about this earlier on. I said, do you get the feeling from George Muller's life that he was kind of quite anxious then? Because he was having to sort of trust God day by day. You know, he didn't have a whopping great load of money in the bank account to make him feel better. He had to trust God day to day. Did that produce quite an anxious feel to his life? Or you know, how did his life feel with that kind of having to trust God that way? Yeah, I mean, again, one of the striking things about his story, and again, what we wanted to bring into our own lives and learn from that, was that he, he didn't feel sorry for himself. He didn't think he was poor. He didn't feel like he was trying to eke out, uh, twist God's arm or cope with a little. He had chosen to put himself in a position where the Lord had to be the answer. And he was um, just incredibly peaceful about that because he genuinely knew God is good and God is faithful. And even the, the ministry that he began with, with the orphan houses and other things he did, he, he knew at the outset, I'm doing this because God, it's God's work. And I've given, I've given my life over to him. And I've said, it's, it's, you know, everything I do now is, is you working through me. So, so bring, you know, bring yourself into it, as it were. And so when you, when you see how he lived, there were days, for sure, and there are journal accounts and there are times where he was at the end of their resources physically. Um, I can't imagine the pressure you would feel if you were running... I mean, I mean, we've got three children at home and Stu has a salary and I, I can't imagine what it would feel like if Stu had no salary and there was no guarantee of money arriving in the bank every month. I don't know. I honestly don't know that experience. And to sit down at the table and to open the cupboards and say it's dinner time, children, and there is nothing except plates in the cupboard. I don't know how that feels. So I can't say that I've lived quite the extremes of it that he has done. But what you see in him was an absolute expectation that God is good. So the Lord is going to do something. He's going to. He's not going to leave us abandoned. Uh, he's going to be faithful to his word. So I'm just going to put myself in a place of waiting patiently, exercising faith and seeing what he will do. And, and he writes often about uh, we, were, we were hard pressed and we felt the pressures. And so we turned to prayer. And as I was saying earlier, he would galvanize the team and his whole lifestyle. His marriage, I mean, he was married twice. One of his, his first wife died um, and he was remarried. And, but both his marriages are characterized by an incredible uh, culture, really, in their home of we pray. That's what we do. And, and because that's how we live and God answers. And, and, and there's such a joy in that. And, and, there's so, and we have had the most fun when it comes to being outside of what we can manage ourselves. We, I think many of us think as Christians like, we want to live an adventurous life and, and many of us will come to conferences like New Day or, or we'll be at church on Sundays, we'll hear preaching or we'll read biographies and we think, oh yeah, I really want my life to, you know, do something, be something, go somewhere. I mean, how many of you feel that? You, you've got like a, a desire in you that you don't just want to kind of do three score years and ten and kind of be a bit boring and come to the end of it and think, what did I really do with my life? I want to be like a, I want to do something in my life, I want it to be adventurous. But we often tend to think from it, the perspective of what can we manage? What have we got in us? So we look at our background, we look at our gifts, our skills, we look at our circumstances, we think, hmm, 
how far could I take this? You know, so there are times when I, I would, you know, I would think to myself, oh, I wonder how much I can manage. And then, and then almost like as if God was the icing on the top of the take, cake, it'd be like, oh, and how much better might it be if God was on top of it all? Um, you know, kind of, I can bake the cake and present it and then God can ice it and put the cherry on the top and it might really go far. And it feels to me like the essence of that is not faith. It's not actually putting yourself. You know, it's a bit like Peter. When Jesus says he's walking on the water and Peter sees him, it's a bit like if Peter was standing on the edge of the boat and he's like, oh, yeah, water walking. Done that before. This is going to work out fine. Bit choppier than normal. Going to need a little bit of help from the Holy Spirit. But basically, water walking was within my remit. It's not how it goes, is it? Peter's like, you can't physically do that, Jesus. The thing you're doing right now is impossible for me to do. And yet faith is, I'm going to stand on what is spoken by man as impossible, and I'm going to watch God make it possible. And, and there's something about that principle, really, that you see in Muller. He just went way beyond what man can manage. He just took out the idea of, this is a doable scenario. You don't, you don't buy a piece of land when you have no finances to do anything with it, unless you're believing that finance is coming. And then when you start putting brick upon brick, and, and all you've got resource for is bricks, you, you only build that and leave it standing there empty if you believe God's then going to bring the finance for windows and heating pipes and coal and beds and children. In fact, it's a hilarious story. The very first opening of the first orphan house in Bristol, um, they had prayed in, like we said, every single item in the house. It's an extraordinary list of things that had come in. And from the most amazing sources, from very, very poor people who were bringing a tiny amount to the offering and from wealthy benefactors. And on the first day of the opening, he... He went to the house and he was so excited. He was whistling and humming to himself and he arrives at the door and he looks in and he just looks at everything the Lord has provided and he's saying, Father, you are faithful and good and I am so looking forward to seeing this place being filled with children and your hand showing what you can do. And he waited all morning for children to arrive. And they'd, you know, they'd said the orphan house is open, applications received from this date. He waited all morning and nobody came. And he waited all afternoon And not a single child came. And he returned home to his wife in the evening with a very heavy heart, very trudgy. And she said, Mr. Muller, why are you... I love the fact that she called him Mr. Muller. Mr. Gibbs. Mr. Muller, she said, why are you so downcast? And he he said, no no children came, Mary. We have this provision from the Lord. And this is not what we asked for. At which point she bursts out laughing And he says, why are you laughing at me when I'm like this? And she says, Mr. Muller, we prayed for the house. We prayed for the carpets. We prayed for the curtains. We prayed for the beds. We prayed for the food. We never asked the Lord for children. He hasn't been faithless. We just didn't ask for it. And such was there. They just burst into hilarious laughter. Both of them, they got straight on their knees. They prayed that evening, Lord, send us children. He goes to the orphan house the next morning. Lo and behold, the children start coming. Because their lives were such that it wasn't a stress so much as a delight to put yourself in that position. And I can honestly say for us that we've had this story recently. The last two years for us have been very much about housing. Um, And we have put ourselves, you know, we, we we were in a position where we could not physically get what we needed to get from for for the next chapter of what we believe God had called us to and we we were priced out of the housing market in in extreme fashion Um, we were renting a home we don't we don't have any 
no capital, no resource. Um, and we, but we knew that we had been called by God to extend our family through fostering. And we knew we needed spare bedrooms and we didn't have them. And so we would look on right move at houses to buy. And we would say, well, that one is £600,000 more than we can buy. Um, and it was, it was ridiculous. It was laughable. And yet we also knew, but God said... God told us, God spoke this into us years and years ago through Muller's life and other things. We, we knew we'd been led to this. So we just kept saying to him, you, you said, you said you would do this. And we just kept praying and, and genuinely knowing at the right time, he will show us how he's going to make this happen. And that's exactly what we've walked through. And it's been a complete joy to watch God come in and take over scenarios that you can't manage yourself and go way beyond what you can do. And I, I, just, I just love the idea that what he's called us to is not like, oh, come follow me and let's see what you've got in you. You know, let's see how far you can go. But it's come follow me and I can do everything and anything. So come on this adventure of believing him for all sorts of extraordinary things that are really like totally beyond our capacity and yet not at all beyond his. And it just seems like prayer and faith and dependence on God rather than being like, oh, poor old Muller, he had to live this kind of hand-to-mouth is it's like wow wonderful Muller he got to live this kind of hand-to-mouth thing and the other thing I find really striking about this is this isn't this wasn't like an early doors season of his life like I had to live like this until I got enough money you know you might you know I think that can be quite prevalent in our culture there's an expectation that well you'll be poor while you're a teenager and you'll sponge off your mum and dad or whoever you live with or your carers and then you'll 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 leave home and you'll get your first job maybe you'll go to university or college or whatever and you'll be kind of eking it out and you'll might live in a slightly dingy sort of flat with you know mice and damp and and then you might get a job and you might get some income and you might have some more resources and then eventually you'll be able to buy nicer clothes and you'll get a nicer phone and eventually you'll get a car and then one day you'll buy a flat or a house and then you'll get a bigger house with a garden and and you'll get comfortable and your life will become one of provision and you'll have kind of made it out of the days when you needed to live by faith as if we grow out of living by faith. When Muller was in his 70s, there were 2,100 children in the orphanages in Bristol. He was a 70-year-old man. He writes in his journal, we still have, this, this week, one particular week, he says, this week we have enough money for three more days of provision for 2,000 children. He had not reached that point in his life where he's like, I have grown out of living by faith. Now I've just got resources. He had continued to stretch that muscle of faith and continued to say, and it was actually a choice he, he was not under compulsion. He wasn't trying to, you know, it, it, sometimes I think we feel like, oh, I better do this for a little while to prove it can be done. And then, oh, thank goodness I can stop doing that now. And I can just live a kind of easy life. He chose to stay in the place of saying, lest God comes, this thing falls apart. And I would say that is a, that for us, is a, that is a massive thing for us. We're about to embark on decisions in our lives, which Stu might share a bit more about, where we are saying, lest God comes, this thing will fall flat. But we are choosing that. People say, why are you choosing to do that? Because God is faithful and we're expecting to see him in the coming. So That's so fantastic. Just amazing, isn't it? You think the, the wonderful thing is that when we say, okay, God, I really am going to put myself in your hands. You know, immediately we start thinking, so I'm going to end up getting very thin and, and looking very poor. And actually, you know, God blesses faith. And uh, it's amazing. As I mentioned earlier in the week, uh, my wife and I and a few others are going to start a new church in Richmond. And Richmond's a very wealthy place. So you'd think, well, of course, everyone would be happy because there's lots of money. I tell you what, it's a pretty miserable place. You walk through, people are very rude and self-obsessed. And uh, I've been in places where people have very little, but they're hugely happy because they've discovered Jesus. I worked in an orphanage in Burundi for a few months in 1999. And uh, 
these kids were so happy. They were discovering life in Jesus that wealth doesn't buy. And it's just amazing to think, when I say, okay, I'm not going to worship God. I am going to, I'm sorry, I'm not going to worship money. I'm going to worship God. Uh, I'm not going to trust in money. I'm going to trust in God. You find a greater joy and supply and abundance and life and excitement and adventure than you would ever find if you chose to live safe and think, well, no, I better trust in money because that's really going to take care of me. I know the people who I've known who are the wealthiest, who don't know Jesus, have often been the, the emptiest. And uh, it's actually discovering what it is to trust a God who keeps his promises. You find real life. It's absolutely, uh, it's wonderful to discover that. So go on, take a few steps of faith this week, even again with the offering. Why not really kind of go out on a limb? Say, all right, God, I'm just going to do something crazy here and see what God does. It'd be so much more exciting to be able to come away from New Day or perhaps it'll be in the days or weeks after New Day that you see the result of it with a story. It'd be great to be able to say, you know what? I've actually got my own story of faith. Maybe have some of you up here next year telling your own stories of what God's done. Of course, loads of you already have stories, but uh, you know, to get more. I want to get more stories, don't you? Amazing. So as you guys go into your future, how is uh, Muller's impact in your lives affecting your next steps forward and the way uh, things are going for you? Sure. So actually when I was, it was actually when I was about 21, 22 and I was reading the story of George Muller, I guess I was so impacted by it, impressed by it, I just felt like the story of this man's life needs to be the story of my life, basically. Um, and, but obviously we don't, what we don't need in this country is massive orphanages for 2000 children. You know, that isn't the way our society works. Um, but the way our society works is we do have a, a massive need for fostering and adoption. Um, and so I think the stats are at the moment, there's something like, there's a need for something like 9,000 foster carers in our country. And every year, a hundred thousand children come into care. Every year, 100,000 children enter the care system. So the need is still there in terms of children that don't have families, don't have parents looking after them, but the way of trying to solve that problem has changed, um, probably for the better, you know, because we want them to have genuine, you know, be in homes and be in families. Um, And so I I knew it had to be different, but I guess from that age, I think I... I think I had a kind of a little seed planted in my heart that I, we should, by faith and through prayer, basically believe God that the church would solve the problem of familyless children in our country. And that, but through the church basically rising up and seeing that as a genuine social need that we had the answer for. Um, that God would do something in the church that would basically solve that problem in a way that would make the rest of the country look and see God is real and God answers prayer, which I think is the heart of Muller, but trying to kind of translate that into our own culture. And so, I mean, that was 15 years ago. Um, and actually, at the time, we kind of briefly looked into fostering and then Livy got pregnant, which kind of <laughs> changed the plan slightly and then got pregnant again. And I'm saying it as if it was her fault, but obviously... I was involved. Um, <laughs> uh, and so we had kids, and we just knew then they wouldn't let us foster. It wasn't the right time. And, and then, like Livy said, we felt we moved to London. We were involved in church planting. We didn't have, we inquired about it. We didn't have enough space in our house because they basically require you to have a spare room in your house. And if you 
live in London, you know that it's not easy to have a spare room in your house because the houses are pretty expensive. Um, and so we were really, well, where we found ourselves really was exactly where Muller was. We needed God to do a miracle for us in order to fulfill the thing that he'd put in our heart. And so we were praying and then largely through uh, Livy's family, actually, we've been able to buy a, so we've now got a six bedroom house in Greenwich which when we were looking at it was like, that's kind of way off the, way off the charts in terms of what we'll ever be able to do. Um, uh, but God kind of has kind of provided it for us. And so we basically over the last year have been through the process of being approved as foster carers. Um, and probably in around November, uh, God willing, we will start to foster children because we felt like that was probably the first, an important first step that we don't just pray for other people to get involved in this important ministry, but actually we ourselves stepped up to it. Um, so the first step for us is that we're going to start looking after children that aren't our own biological children. Um, and that in itself will be a step of faith and will, will require God to help us uh, to do things that we can't do and help us as a family. But I guess beyond that, our prayer has been that that would that's in somehow, not just through us, but that God would do something in this country that would basically change the way the church connects and relates to the problem of orphans um and i guess over the years you know as i've been reading the bible whilst feeling this sense of call you see more and more how actually care for the orphan is actually one of the kind of a primary biblical calling on the church it's one of the kind of standout ways in which the church demonstrates the justice and the mercy of god um and i and i think it so i i guess i feel like we we're in the middle of this kind of three different things. One is that the Bible tells us to do it. Um, two is that God has kind of spoken to us about it and many others as well. The third thing is that it's, it is a problem in our society that our society cannot answer. They can't get enough people to do it. There, there just isn't, it's just kind of an ongoing challenge. And actually there are more and more children going into care and it will become more and more an issue that our society cannot handle and so we kind of sit in the middle of these three different things that make it kind of something if if God answers our prayers and does this it will be a profound demonstration of his glory and so that's what we're praying for that God would do that over the in the rest of our lives I think we feel probably quite like um when we look at Muller's life story and we think about how he started with a little terraced house in uh, in a little street in Bristol and packed out you know with, with um 20 23 girls or something like that um and when you look at when you look at the end of his life and you read the stories of his funeral and um and you read the stories of what what it looked like in 1890 when there were a hundred thousand orphan places in the country compared to three and a half thousand when he first started we we don't think to ourselves oh wow we could be like the people that make the difference on our own um, at all and actually the reality is we the fostering and the adoption system in the UK means that once you've got one or two your hands are full <laughs> um, the level of need and the practical resources that means that we're not we're not anticipating for our lives that we are going to directly be involved in anything more than a handful of children but we are we are looking like at this small little house as it were and saying to God if if you could use us and many others like us with their small little houses and gather us together as your people across the UK. We could, we could 
the church could be like those orphanages of Bristol. The church could stand on the hill and say, bring vulnerable children to us. Bring fatherless children to us. Bring broken family life to us because we actually have the grace of God on us for fathering, for mothering, for fostering, for adoption, for, for raising children in the truth. And, and the, the, the amazing thing is to feel like we're just one very, very small part of a very big picture but in the same way, really, that it took, you know, a little house on Wilson Street in Bristol in 1830-something to be opened up so that eventually there would be these five massive buildings. I mean, if you go to Bristol now, there is a huge long road called the Muller Road. Um, and on, all the way along it are these, house, these orphan houses as was. Now one of them's a college, one of them's flats, one of them's something else. But they, they still stand. And they're like a, they, you drive past them and you just think, there is God's faithfulness on display. And I'd want, I want, in this nation, I want people to say to look at the church and to look at how the church cares for vulnerable children and say, there is God's faithfulness on display. And and I want our society to look up. I want politicians and teachers and social workers and those who are caring for, you know, a massive portion of our nation. This is probably one of the biggest social issues of our nation. We don't face starvation. We're not living in a third world context like that. We don't face um, corruption in government at the levels that other nations do. We do face a huge, huge social issue with family breakdown and children entering care. We, We may have a baby coming to us in the next few months who literally is lifted from her parents right out of the hospital because they're not able to be a carer straight off. We'll have children coming into our home who are recovering from drug addictions from birth. Because they were born to people who are living with drug addictions. There will be children who are coming out of domestic violence, out of uh, families of abuse. That, that has now become normal. And the, ch- the, the opportunity in our generation, you know, we're not in the 1800s, we're not building orphanages, but the opportunity in our generation to say to the world, God is able to do this. Let's do this. So that, in a sense, this seminar's got a funny title, like, Faith That Caused Us to Want to Change the World. And I'm a bit like, eee! I don't like that next to my name. I don't plan to be a world changer alone, but I want to be part of the move of God and the church of God mm. that brings about social change in the UK in our generation. Yeah, we've only got two minutes, I think, or something like that. So I just we wanted to end on this because the, George Muller is known for all of that. But um, the other time, the other way that he is also known is just for teaching on prayer in general. And if you stick around long enough, you'll hear people quote him. On different things. His most famous quote actually is when he was asked about his prayer life, and people would often ask him, obviously, tell us how to pray. You know, like, what do we need to learn about prayer? And his famous line is that he said, I see it as my, my first duty every day to basically get my soul happy in God. So he's a man that's known perhaps more than almost anyone else in the world ever for prayer. And he says his first duty, his first thing that he attends to every day is he gets before God and he makes sure that his heart is caught up in all that God is, all that God has done, so that his soul is happy in God. That is fertile ground for faith-filled prayer. Um, and he, and he, he, someone else asked him, said, you know, Mr. Muller, tell us the secrets of, you know, the life of prayer. You know, what is it that you've got that we all need to learn? He said, there's, he said, there's two main secrets to my life of prayer. And he said, the first one is my wife. Uh, which lots of husbands will smile at <laughs> and agree. And he said, the second one is the bucket of cold water that I dunk my head into every morning to wake myself up. And almost all of us can smile ruefully at that one and agree because most of us can feel inspired about prayer and know that the, possibly the biggest challenge is that when we wake up in the morning, 
most of us don't actually wake up singing hymns. You know, most of us actually wake up feeling tired or feeling grotty or not even sure what we should pray about. And I think what George Muller is telling us is that he felt like that when he woke up as well. Is that he didn't, it's not that he, God had this special grace for him that meant he woke up, you know, already praying. And it's like, oh, I'm already praying. I'll just step out of bread and, bed, bed and carry on. He woke up feeling sleepy and groggy, and, but he kind of basically trained himself to dunk his head into a bucket of cold water so that he was alert enough to start to get his soul happy in God so that he could then pray and believe God for all these things. And I guess we were conscious talking about all these things because they're kind of inspiring stories. They can be very inspiring, but you can almost feel like, where do I go from here? You know, what, how, what does this look like for me? I'm 14 or I'm 27 or, you know, like, what does this look like for me in, when I get home from New Day or even tomorrow morning? And actually, I think what George Muller would say if he was here, he would say, your first duty is to learn, actually, how to get your soul happy in God. You've got, before you can even get to that other stuff, you've basically got to learn what does it look like to have a life in God that is actually joy-giving and life-giving. And, and very practically, that basically means training yourself to pray when you don't feel like it. It means getting yourself into the presence of God when you're not feeling inspired, but making sure you do feel inspired when you leave. It doesn't mean you have to have uh, moments of gl- unspeakable glory every time you pray, but it does mean that every time you pray, you are looking for some kind of encounter with a living God that feeds your soul, and that that is your first duty. And so if, you, if all the rest kind of fades away into the backgrounds of your mind, and you're not really sure what to do with it, I would just say hang on to, well, to that for yourself. Before you get the road towards praying great prayers and seeing great answers starts with training yourself to meet God every day. And it doesn't mean you have to do it just once a day. You could do it four or five times a day. Uh, it doesn't mean you have to do it in the morning, although that will probably help you. Uh, it means you've got to train yourself over years of learning what does it look like to have a life of meeting God in prayer. Yeah, Simon's just suggested that we pray, so I would love to do that. You can stay sitting you can maybe raise your hands or maybe there's some things just in your own heart that have stirred. Uh, we would, I think I would just love to pray for God to uh, stir up those things in your own hearts. So, Father, we thank you that you've been here with us, Lord, and that you love to use these stories of faith to inspire us. Thank you, God, that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same God that Jesus himself prayed to the same God that Peter prayed to, the same God that George Muller prayed to, you're the same God that we pray to. And you're the same God here working in us with the same vision, the same plans, the same willingness to answer prayer. And I pray that just like George Muller as a, as a student who'd grown up with people praying, he'd grown up with the formality of religion, and, and then he discovered the God who I pray to is real. He hears me. And he knelt down in his, in his own bedroom and began a life of prayer that changed the world. I pray for us, Lord, that we would learn to kneel down in our bedrooms when no one else is looking. And we'd learn to meet with you. We'd learn to pray prayers and obtain answers. We would learn to get our souls joyful in you. We would learn to read the scripture and pray it back to you with faith, Lord. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would teach us these things 
I pray that you would today and throughout this week in this seminar stream that you would sow seeds in people's hearts, uh, visions and promises. George Muller, uh, he just read Psalm 81 and it's got one line in it and it says, open wide your mouth and I will fill it. And that was the promise that God gave him that sustained him his whole life. Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. It's kind of a very odd little one single line in a psalm. That promise sustained all of this. And I pray that you would give promises into the hearts of people here today. And even listening to this online, that you would stir things that are already there or you'd put them in for the first time. And those promises would sustain a life of faith. Amen.